0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: We're live at the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club in downtown San Francisco, and our panelists are joining us literally from across the state. And this is for the week-to-week political roundtable. It's Friday, August 7th, 2020. Yes, we actually have gotten this far. We are the, in fact, 175th online program at the Commonwealth Club since the pandemic struck, and you can find past and future online programs, as well as how you can support our programs at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, it has been several months since we had a week-to-week program, and I think one can objectively declare that the world falls apart without us. I mean, we never used to have to worry about murder hornets and Kanye West and doctors warning women against dreaming about demon sex. And I'm not making any of that up and that's what really scares me. So this hour together, we will, I think, literally be saving the world. I'm John Zipperer, your host for week to week uh, political Roundtable, And today we're going to discuss exactly what you think we'd be talking about, the effects of the pandemic, racial justice, economic collapse, and vice presidential picks. I'd like to issue my usual reminder that any opinions that are expressed here today are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club of California. Now let's meet our panelists for today. They are all week to week veterans. Bob Butler is a reporter with KCBS radio. He's also the national broadcast vice president for SAG-AFTRA and he's on Twitter at BobButler7. Welcome back, Bob. Carla Marinucci is a senior writer for Political California Playbook. She's on Twitter at Marinucci. Good to see you, Carla.
0: Very good to see you. Thanks.
1: And Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. He's also the host of the weekly Politics in the Time of Coronavirus. It's a webinar from the LA World Affairs Council Town Hall, and it's every Thursday at 11 a.m. California time, of course. You can register, in fact, for future ones at lawac.org and follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Schnur. So, Dan, good to see you again.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Yeah. Now, on to our roundtable. Since the COVID pandemic basically blew up here in the United States earlier this year, um, there have been nearly 4.9 million confirmed cases and more than 160,000 deaths in this country. Here in California, there have been more than 541,000 cases confirmed and 10,014 deaths. The county with the leading uh, number of, uh, in both st- tragic statistics, is Los Angeles County. And maybe let's start there with you, Dan. You're in Southern California. Why has the experience bent down there been so out of uh, proportion to the rest of the state?
2: I think the, the the biggest challenge for Los Angeles, for Southern California, and now we're beginning to see it in the Central Valley, is the socioeconomic makeup of the region, uh, the Bay Area, particularly because of the tremendous economic strength of Silicon Valley, starts from a stronger perspective. L.A., with more of a manufacturing and service and tourism-based economy, has just been ravaged economically by the virus. And what that's led to is a lot more economic displacement, people living in crowded situations, no different than one you're experiencing in San Francisco in the Bay Area, but perhaps to, a, perhaps to a, de- a greater degree. A lot of working class voter uh, individuals, a lot of essential workers, of very, lar- very large communities of color, all adds up to a population that's much more exposed to the risks of the virus than those who can live in more you know, rarefied circumstances.
1: Talking about folks who are able to live different areas and then there are those who are not able to live in certain areas. Bob, we were talking a little before the program about some reporting you've been doing on uh, protesters at San Quentin. Can you talk a bit about what their concerns are and uh, what, if anything, has been done to address them?
3: Well, we'll go back to I believe it was in, in May. There was an outbreak of COVID at the uh, state Prison in Chino and the prison officials got the idea, listen, let's go ahead and transfer some of these inmates out so we don't have so much overcrowding. And they sent them to various prisons throughout the state, and about 200 went to San Quentin. And within two weeks or so after they got there, there were, all of a sudden there was an outbreak at San Quentin. So as of right now, there's at least 20 prisoners have died. There's been several thousand cases among the prisoners and the prison staff. Um, and the people that were protesting were basically these were are family members of inmates who were asking for them to be released uh, because the governor said he would release some people from the prisons to relieve overcrowding, but of course uh, it hasn't happened as fast as they would like. Of course, some of the people they wanna have released may not be able to get out, um, but that's why they were there. They, and the people that supported them were there saying that you know, we should stop mass incarceration.
1: And it would seem that they've got some of the same concerns that families who have folks in, who have relatives in nursing homes have, they're basically stuck in a, in a confined area around people who are, who have, you know, may or may not be getting the medical treatment they need and may not even be able to be visited by their families. And at the time that this, you know, pandemic is just raging through these institutions.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a, a neighbor, he's about 80 years old, and I guess it was a mid, mid-June, mid uh, his partner of 30 some years passed away. He has spent the last six months in care homes in the in this area. And he was able to see him, I think, once or twice. So he wasn't even able to be there uh, when his partner passed away. And that's been devastating for him. And this, that's the case for many families around the state.
1: Carla, in the early months, weeks of of this pandemic and, and with states and localities starting to clamp down, Governor Gavin Newsom got quite a bit of praise for kind of being right out there and listening to the doctors. In more recent times, I think there's been a lot of some re- reassessment of that as California has become somewhat of a poster child of, of you know, one of the leading. I don't know if we're I don't know if we're the leading state in terms of, of cases, but if not, we're close.
0: We are, John. And, and this has been the political challenge for Gavin Newsom. Uh, yeah, you're right. Three months ago, California was viewed as, as the best example of how things were being handled here. Since then, there's a lot of criticism that uh, Newsom may have opened a lot of the businesses, especially bars, uh, too early. They, as Dan pointed out, the diverse populations have been a big challenge. This is a governor who's got the pandemic challenge, the economic challenge that goes with it. He's got an educational challenge and some of the the social unrest that has gone Over the last couple of months, this is all battered, uh, Gavin Newsom. But I have to say his poll numbers really haven't been that hurt. He's upwards of 60 percent. I think the last uh, poll was 69 percent approval rating, down maybe from 85 percent. But the fact is the governor has been challenged in how do you how does he keep this message Moving, how does he get out the message to Californians that wearing these masks, that social distancing continues to be important? When we're now in it for the long haul, it's been since mid March, and that is where Newsom has had an issue, especially since we've seen some very big bumps in the road in California. COVID data over the last week, um, Dr. Mark Gailey, the uh, the health uh, uh, chief here in California admitted that the reporting data is uh, troubled, is not accurate at this point, which leaves California in a bind to know exactly where it's at in terms of testing and contact tracing. So Newsom, for a lot of reasons, is juggling a lot of different balls, the educational ball, the economic one, social unrest and the health issue all at once. I don't think we've seen a governor in modern times have to deal with so much but yes um, he's taking it from critics all around including you know on the issue of the unemployment figures and why they're so high and why why people aren't getting their checks so a myriad of different problems being faced right now uh, from in the governor's seat.
1: Bob Carla mentioned uh, you know the governor needing to get across a message about the importance of masking and how to behave during these times. Is his messaging getting through? Uh, how is it? You know, is he using the media to, to press to to get this message across? Is he doing it in social media? I mean, he he is the telegenic you know candidate of of social media and, and the cameras. What are you seeing? And and uh, do you think people are getting the message, or at least?
3: Well, he was getting across using the media until this week. He hasn't had a briefing at all this week, and I think. One of the issues with the governor, and I, you know, I covered his news conference on March 15th, in which he said, seniors need to shelter in place. We need to shut down the bars and the restaurants. And we did that, and it really paid off. But I think you started to have, unfortunately, you started to have a lot of pressure coming from Washington and from people that got tired of being inside for two months. He would I need to get out. And so I think he bowed to that pressure uh, in mid-May to say, okay, we're going to open up slowly and people didn't hear the slowly part. They just were going to open up. And then you saw people crowding the beaches on Memorial Day. Uh, so he's trying to get the message out. But once you say, don't do this, okay, it's okay to do this now, don't do this again, people aren't, aren't listening to that anymore.
1: Dan, what do you think? Has he lost uh, control of the message?
2: I think to some degree, he has. And I ought to start by saying that to a large degree, that might not be his fault. We are a state of 40 million people that notoriously pays very little attention to state politics and state government. And every governor, every leader faces a crisis. Schwarzenegger had the Great Recession. Gray Davis had the energy crisis. Pete Wilson and George Duke majored had earthquakes. But those rally round the flag moments, whether for governors or for mayors or for presidents, generally tend to be fairly short-lived. You get people to hang with you for a short period of time, then you come out the other side and everyone exhales. And unfortunately, Gavin Newsom and his colleagues around the country don't have that luxury. What I would say to add on to Bob's point, though, if I can, John, is in addition to talking about a crisis in leadership, I think it's important to talk about a crisis in followership. As Bob correctly pointed out, and Carla alluded to this too, Gavin Newsom never said, hey, we're done. Go out and party, hit the bars. You know, pretend that this never happened. I think what happened, that we, you know, is we have a fear for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, we tend to be a very self-indulgent society, and just like we give trophies to every kid on every soccer team at the end of the season, I think a lot of Californians and a lot of Americans in May said, "Hey, I did my part. I tried hard. I'm done now." And the real challenge now in terms of leadership for this governor and 49 other governors is to say, we're grateful for what you did, but you got to keep doing it. And that is a much more nuanced message and a less, much less forceful message than, any, than you issue in the first days of a crisis.
1: Carla, it's been noted a number of times that uh, some of the most successful political communicators on this have been female Mayors London breed, national leaders Angela merkel uh, new zealand let 's talk about uh, on the local level here in California. what are some of the mayors you 've seen who have been particularly successful, and if so, why you
0: know, i think, I think london breed you 're talking about a, a very good example of somebody who goes out to the streets who uh, talks to people at, on a regular basis and is not afraid to admit when maybe she stumbles here and there. I think London Breed has been uh, uh, out there on the media and getting out that message every day. And, and let's face it, San Francisco went through some tough times when we talked about some of the Black Lives Matter protests and some of the social unrest. She was dealing with that as well. Uh, she's been a good example, and I think that's one of the reasons she's viewed as a rising star in the party. I think uh, in, in Southern California, you have to look at Kevin Faulconer, a, uh, a Republican who has managed to walk that tightrope between business and between the health concerns and has seems to have managed this crisis in a way that has him w- a win-win on both sides. San Diego has had some tough roads in this, but Faulkner, it's one of the reasons why people look ahead at him. This may be the Republican Party's, uh, one of the Republican Party's few uh, hopeful statewide candidates in the future, possibly for governor. Uh, that's, that's a good example there. I think uh, San Jose, uh, Sam Licardo has been another one who has dealt with mayors, the homelessness, etc., cetera, out there in the streets. And, you know, Libby Schaff in Oakland has tried to do the same. They have a tremendous homeless problem in Oakland. But all of these mayors are having to do, deal with Some of the issues, when you talk about the numbers here in terms of unemployment, in terms of the the economic hits to their city, I think it's still unknown how they're going to handle what is ahead when you're talking about the eviction crisis that's coming up on these cities. And and they have all talked about the tsunami that that is about to hit now that these moratoriums are going to run out. How, how do they handle that and what could be a wave of homelessness? That is something to watch. That and the fact that Cal- the California Employment Development Department still doesn't seem to have its act together to get money out to people in California. This is an issue that Gavin Newsom is also going to have to deal with. So uh, I think we have, we have yet to see how some of the biggest problems are going to be handled by these mayors, not to mention the school issue. We're just weeks away from California school kids going back. This is this is issue number one to so many families around the state, not knowing whether kids will, will be in a bubble or out there in public schools. And it is a huge economic and and family issue and social issue. The teachers unions very much involved and very much uh, opposed to, to widespread going back and uh, pushing back on President Trump's suggestion that schools should be opened, so these are these are some of the issues the mayors are going to have to deal with. So far, some of them have starred more than others here in California in terms of that messaging.
1: Dan, what what do you think? And in, and in particular about the Southern California mayors, I mean, how are they? How would you rate them?
2: I, you know, you know what? If I can, John, I'd I'd actually broaden the point that that, that Carla was making because I think her. Mayor by mayor assessment is is very astute, but if you look at polling around the country more broadly to see who's being judged well and who's being judged poorly, elected officials, mayors, governors, electeds at all levels it 's really interesting. voters don 't seem to be blaming any politicians, not Donald Trump, not any other they don't they 're they're smart enough they 're perceptive enough not to blame their elected leaders for the virus when it comes to public opinion polling and support, what they seem to be doing is they're rewarding effort. And when they see their leaders making a strong effort, as Carla mentioned earlier, to engage in the community, when they see them visibly on an ongoing basis, urging action, even if those actions come up short. Those are the elected leaders who tend to be uh, uh, looked at most highly. Those governors and the president who tend to be more dismissive of the challenge, the remain calm all as well. They they're viewed with a little bit more suspicion. So I think one of the reasons that Newsom's numbers have sustained, as Carlo was talking about earlier, is not so much because voters are satisfied with the outcomes. How could they be? EDD these new these new these, these new case numbers. But they see him and they see the mayors who Carla and the leaders who Bob was talking about making an effort that's not enough to get us through this, but they're willing to give credit for those who they see, you know, pushing forward.
1: Bob, do you agree? I mean, certainly on the national level, uh, it does seem that Donald Trump is getting dinged for everything. You know, he, he was very late and even recognizing this was an issue. And then he's even lately just been returning to the mantra that this this disease will just this virus will just disappear because that's what happens. Um, do you think he's being judged fairly on that, on his record?
3: I would say yes and no. Yes, because as the president, you need to set the tone. Um, and clearly, in the very beginning, when we had the Carnival cruise ship off the off the coast, and he didn't want it to, to pull into Oakland because it would it would drive the numbers up. That seemed to be all he cared about was the numbers. No, in that. I don't really expect him to do anything. I mean, because given his experience coming into office, you don't, you can't expect much of him. So I'm not at all surprised of what he is doing. And I think he is, he is, especially now, to tell everybody that it's, it's great. I don't know who he's talking to. Um, maybe it's just his base, who's all, who he's always just talked to. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's taking it hard in the polls. Although, as we know from 16, what do the polls really mean? John can i uh,
2: can i can I jump onto Bob's point real quick because I think it's a really smart one. Go ahead, so there were a lot of voters in California and elsewhere who had very low expectations for Trump at the beginning of this crisis at the beginning of his presidency from his perspective politically, that's okay because he had a lot of people who were in his corner of much bigger to Trump concern to Trump in his reelection campaign is not the loss of Bob Boyd, although I'm sure he stays awake at night worrying about it Bob but the voter, the people who did have confidence in him and have lost it over the course of the pandemic. And in fact, there's two demographic groups in particular nationally that were very strongly on his side in January and February who have moved off over the course of the crisis. One is older voters, seniors, who have voted for every Republican candidate since the year 2000 in large numbers, are now slightly supporting Biden as a result of the virus. And the second, in particular, not white working class voters in particular, but white working class women who were the one group that helped him keep the gender gap against Clinton down to manageable proportions. They have abandoned him in huge numbers, both over the virus and the discussion over race relations. So the people who lacked confidence in him in January... Bob's right. He wasn't paying attention to them from the beginning. But those are the people who've lost confidence in the last five months. And that's why he's facing such an uphill fight right now for reelection.
3: Especially with the issue with schools. He's saying, open up the schools. You know, now, I mentioned what I've been doing in delivering groceries to people that couldn't get out. And a lot of these are moms. And, you know, one of the biggest issues they're concerned about is what's going to happen with my kids. They'd love for their kids to go back to school because they're going crazy, they're pulling their hair out having the kids home all day, but they don't want them to go back to school if it's not going to be safe. And right now there's nobody that convinced them that it's going to be safe. So I think that's, the president's paying a price for that too, I believe.
0: Uh, you know, I think the issue of equity here is is something that really faces, not just California, but every state. If you have wealthier parents, middle, upper middle class parents who are able to, to go out and do special private bubbles with their kids or private sort of instruction for their kids, and uh, and inner city kids don't aren't, aren't going to have access to that. The teachers have all said, "What is this going to mean to our education system as a whole? Are we going to lose an entire generation of kids?" It should be pointed out that President Trump's own son Barron, uh, his school is not going back. Um, that that even as he pushes for these schools to open, so this is a concern for a lot of parents. And it is it is job one, I think, at this point for every politician to get on this and figure. How are the schools in all of these local districts, I wish there are a thousand more in California, are going to handle this with just weeks ahead uh, before the bell rings?
1: Yeah, along the lines of equity and, and education, uh, we had a program at the club here sometime last year, and it was talking about homework and so much of the homework you know, being done through you know computer programs and such. Well, some families where the only internet connection they have is the parent's cell phone. So the kid's waiting until the ki- parents get home from work, and then they each take turns to able to get to do all their, their homework for the day. Yeah, I mean, versus, of course, yes, you see some parents or, who have the money and they've kind of banded together and gotten some teachers for their, for their students. Another part of the education issue is, uh, we saw this in the, in the news, um, this student down in, I think it was in Atlanta, I might have the city wrong, who took a photo of a crowded uh, uh, hallway at her school showing that just about no one was wearing masks and they were all very crowded together, clearly not social distancing or apparently doing anything to to, uh, take into account the virus. She was first suspended, and then today we learn she was not suspended. She was resuspended, unsuspended, mal-suspended, whatever. But, um, I mean, that's got to scare any of those parents who's been eager to have their kids go back to school and realizing the students weren't doing the right thing, there was no one enforcing them to do the right thing. You know, if, if we can't count on, on, a, on grown adults to go to a party and, and uh, social distance and wear masks, it's kind of a lot to expect.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, and John, you remember the, par- the, the argument of the president has been, well, children are immune uh, or somehow not affected. It's, yes, they're not as drastically affected by the virus, but they can easily pass it on to mom or uh, the grandparents or other older uh, adults who are, uh, who, are auto, who are immune deficient. This is the issue, I think, that millions of families are facing. They get it. And so far, I think the president has not gotten it on this issue. And, and I think that, that, that is, again, going to uh, cost him.
3: We talk about this every flu season, that kids are human petri dishes. And that doesn't change.
2: <laughs> if, you, if, you look, if, if you look at Trump's actions, first on the economy and more recently on the schools, John, in a strictly political context, I think what I would argue is that back last spring, Donald Trump took a gamble. He looked back at political history, or one of his advisors did, and realized that presidents running for re-election during economic downturns don't get re-elected. Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, George H.W. Bush, Herbert Hoover are the only four presidents in the last century. How about that Hoover reference? How about all four of those (laughs) (laughs) presidents? All four of those presidents were running in economic downturns, all lost. Trump took a gamble and said, if I push for the economy to open up more quickly rather than slowly, maybe we can be back on track on fall. And that's going to help me. He took the gamble. It failed. So here we are now again, three months, four months later. And it's the exact same gamble. If I take a risk, he thinks, and I can get the schools open, the parents back to work, life back to normal, I'll be okay come October. And it's not entirely clear, as Bob and Carla both correctly pointed out, that that gamble is going to be a successful one, or more importantly, the parents of school children are going to be as comfortable with him taking this gamble as they did the economic risk back in March and April.
1: Well, as I think I noted earlier, a lot of the topics we want to discuss tonight are all interrelated and uh, uh, kind of meld in together and we've already kind of brought up partially the issues of the protests and 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 the the reaction to them but let's address that more specifically now And, and this is in the months following the the killing of george floyd in minnesota there have not just been protests there have been sustained protests and there have been protests not just of activists or longtime civil rights uh, personalities, but, I mean, Mitt Romney. I mean, you've had statements that, to me at least, kind of sounded like they were beyond the uh, the typical uh, milquetoast sort of things from from Republicans, you know, Condoleezza Rice, George W. Bush. I mean, saying that this is something we have to grapple with. This is not normal. We can't keep going along with this. So let's talk a bit about the, the way this country is grappling with, with, racial injustice in particular in the in the uh, criminal justice system and what if at all you think is changing as a result of it or, or has the you know has the needle moved on this bob have you seen anything in your reporting and what you've been viewing
3: well i've been covering protests for a long time and um i was tickled uh watching some of the early coverage you know, on the news and particularly cable news where they talked about there were people coming to these peaceful protests who didn't want to be peaceful as if if this was something new. Now, Carly, you've been in San Francisco for I don't know how long, and I remember covering, went up to the first Gulf War, um, and you would find 100,000 people uh, in San Francisco. And over to the left or to the right, you'd see a group of people dressed in black, carrying backpacks with their faces covered. You know, they got the name, they're called Black Bloc. These people are not there to peacefully protest. They were there to cause trouble. I'll never forget the first time I marched along with them, they got to Union Square and they ran through Macy's, breaking display cases, grabbing stuff and just going. This has been a theme in protest throughout this country now for quite a while. So yes, you have peaceful protests, but you also have people who show up to take advantage. And it's hard to differentiate between who is who. The problem with the Floyd protests, is it's now taken on an even darker tone because you have people, the white supremacists, the white nationalists, who show up and they're there just to foment trouble. You saw the video of the guy in Minneapolis with the umbrella breaking the window with the auto zone. They now say he's part of some some far-right group. You had Chris Carrillo show up at the George Floyd protest in, in Oakland and goes into the federal building and kills the security guard. These people are not there to peacefully protest. That is the problem, and it really makes it more difficult for somebody who wants to be peaceful to say, "No, that's not us. That's those guys."
1: Dan, we're hearing as a result of of, of uh, exactly what Bob is talking about, this term "accelerationists," and these are the you know extreme right wing uh, white supremacist groups, uh, survivalists who basically expect that they can hasten an end of the current society and uh, some of these groups that are being reported as, as you know, instigating some of this violence um, are reportedly adhering to this kind of thought. Talk about, if you would, about how political leaders are dealing with this when you have, you know, when you're, you have potential violence and in some cases actual violence on the streets and then you also have Much of this issue is around the police forces and the security forces that you might normally rely on to try to either hem in or even end the violence, where they are implicated in a lot of violence and, of course, ongoing, historic. I mean, George Floyd was just one of a long list of African-Americans who have lost their lives at the hands of police officers. Well,
2: once again, and I'll I'll take a look at this uh, through a political lens. And what I will what I will say, and the mayor of Portland made this point as a result of the protests in his city just last night, when even after the departure of federal troops, there was in the midst of an otherwise peaceful rally, some incidents of violence. And what the mayor said, and Mayor Schaff in Oakland has made a similar point, is he said, you are helping to reelect Donald Trump. And the point that Mayor Wheeler is making, the point that Mayor Schaaf is making is that agitators whether from the right or the left, that are interfering with an otherwise peaceful and understandable protest. They are providing the president with his last and perhaps best hope for re-election, which is playing a law and order card to those same older voters, to those same working class voters that I was talking about a little bit earlier in this conversation. He knows historically that when the tough on crime card gets played, whether it's by Nixon in the 60s or by Clinton in the 90s the where it works the most effectively is with those two voter groups and if he can he has failed to date if he can convince those voters that Joe Biden is somehow complicit with those who are stirring up trouble and causing violence that doesn't guarantee him re-election it's a much different electorate than it was when Nixon or Reagan or Clinton ran in their respective campaigns but I think those mayors that have called for peaceful daytime protests and to get out of the way at night to make it more difficult for violent agitators from either side of the political spectrum are approaching this, not just from the right political standpoint, but from the right standpoint in in terms of public safety. Because if the peaceful protest concludes at dusk and the only people out on the street are those who are looking to create trouble, it's going to be much more difficult for them to do so.
1: Carla, what do you think? I mean, if, if... President Trump was making a a, a Nixonian or, or a George Wallace sort of law and order tough guy approach. From what I'm seeing in, in initial polling, is it's it's backfiring on him. That even even you know suburban white voters are saying, "Yikes, that's not. We don't want to be a part of that."
0: Suburban white voters are are supporting the idea of peaceful protests and supporting the idea of police and criminal reform. Um, I, I think. If, if Trump is able to uh, use this in messaging, that's going to be the question, as Dan said. He has already uh, tried to suggest that uh, Joe Biden, for instance, wants to defund the police. Where uh, And he's been called on it in a couple of big interviews. The Chris Wallace interview is one place. Um, and, and I think most major Democrats would say defunding the police is not what they're talking about is reforming the police and in many cases as in San Francisco London Bridge just announced this week switching some of the funding to social programs and to crime prevention programs that will keep kids from getting into the system in the first place those are the kind of long term problems it's kind of hard hard to uh, put on a bumper sticker but i think the defund the police uh, one has, has sort of handed Trump something that he's going to continue to try and bash the Democrats with. In his case, he kind of went overboard this week, I think, not only accused Biden of defunding the police, but being against the Bible and being anti-God. I mean, it's gone a little too far. But I think the fact is, as Dan said, if you can try and paint the Democrats as radical socialists who want to defund the police and get rid of law and order, Um, that may be an effective uh, track for him to win back some of those voters that he's lost.
1: Bob, uh, in a recent interview with Vogue magazine, Mayor London Breed made a point of talking about what she called a disconnect between the aims of white progressives and what they want to kind of see come out of this current uh, uh, upheaval. And she said, you know, uh, a disconnect between that and what African-American communities actually want. What can you tell us about that? Do do you think that disconnect is there? Is she making too much of it or not enough?
3: Well, well, I think what African-Americans want is, and I think Reverend Al Sharpton said it best uh, at George Floyd's funeral, get your knee off our necks. And I think just as in the the 1950s, people were shocked when they saw um, Emmett Till and how he had been treated and how he had been abused. It brought some people off of their couches in the 1960s, seeing the march on Selma and how police had turned fire hoses and dogs on peaceful protesters, it brought more people off of their couches. And I think George Floyd is this is now the latest thing to get people off their couches. White progressives may want some things. African Americans just want just want to be able to to go outside and not not be t- stopped by the police, not be harassed by the police. Um, and a lot of people, more people, are now seeing that it actually is happening. Because what you hear from most people, oh that doesn't really happen. You, know, you should have done anything wrong. And I will agree, don't do anything wrong. But, you know, you have cases like John Crawford, who's buying a gun, a BB gun at, at Walmart, and he gets shot to death for carrying a BB gun at Walmart. Even people that don't do things wrong end up dead, and that is the problem.
2: The, the, the point uh, where I think Bob makes a really important point, John, and this is something we've seen here in Southern California. I'm, I, I'm part of a coalition. It's the Los Angeles Urban League, our, our, our region's largest African-American community organization. The organization Hispana is organized for political equality. The organized uh, uh, Center for Asians United and the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust and the Jewish Center for Justice. We do joint programming together and began doing so earlier this year. And Michael Lawson, who's the head of our Urban League here, was talking about the demonstrations after the George Floyd tragedy, and he said, he said, uh, he said I, I marched after Rodney King. He said I marched after Martin. He's a he's a little bit older than than I, than I am. He said here was the difference this time. He said this time he said I marched with huge numbers of Latinos and Asian Pacific Islanders and white people of all ages. And because the demonstrations were so much broader and so much more diverse, they carry that much more power and that much more authority in the halls of power. And I think it's a critically important point. Uh, You know, Bob is absolutely correct. This is nothing new. But the fact that it has mobilized a broader uh, response than we've seen historically gets to Carla's point. Donald Trump's gamble is that the electorate in 2020 is going to respond the same way the electorate in 1968. And not only is the American populace very different than it was in 1968, in particular, the the makeup of the suburban electorate that he's lost is much, much different. And winning them back on a law and order message, while not impossible, is much more difficult than it may have been in the past.
1: Looking at the the calls to reform the police, using that terminology then, what do you think is the likelihood and what do you think is maybe the biggest stumbling block or hurdle to an effective uh, reforming of the police that will allow cities and and counties to have, you know, uh, secure streets and such, but also, you know, allows everybody to feel protected by the police and not have to be scared when they see an officer coming. So maybe start with you, Dan. I mean, what, what are, are we seeing anything happening? We've seen a couple cities that have made some initial moves, but I mean, are we seeing anything that looks like a a sustainable, you know, replicable uh, approach and what, if anything, is the biggest challenge to doing anything like that?
2: If it's going to happen, it is going to happen at the local and to some degree the state level. Um, it seems like only a few months ago when Washington, D.C. was pledging to work on a bipartisan basis toward police reform. Oh, wait, it was only a few months ago when Washington, D.C. was pledging to work on a bipartisan basis toward police reform. I had the uh, good fortune of being able to host Senator Tim Scott, a uh, Republican from South Carolina, on my webinar uh, a couple weeks ago, and he talked in very encouraging terms about the work he's doing with Representative Karen Bass to try to resurrect the police reform legislation in Congress. So I guess two things I took from listening to him and having watched what Representative Bass has said about it. uh, Number one, there's no one, at least no credible voice left in the discussion in in favor of chokeholds. So the types of egregious violent oversteps that we've seen from police officers in the past that's become largely discussion about whether they should be federally prohibited or whether the federal government should in fact create huge disincentives including withholding funding from local police departments. So that one's going to get that one seems like it's going to get settled. The really tricky issue is most of your audience knows John cuz they're smart people is the term qualified immunity, the legal protections for a police officer. And of course, on one hand, a police officer, just like a journalist or a professor who commits an act of violence ought to be held accountable for it. The police unions and their advocates argue that the life and death moment-by-moment decisions make it more challenging. Senator Scott has come up with, I think, is a really intriguing compromise, and I'd love to hear Bob and Carla's thoughts on it. What he has proposed in order to deal with the legal protection is to offer legal protection to the individual officer, but not to the department. And so if an individual officer acts in an inappropriate, violent, illegal way, that individual, that woman or that man, is not going to be held for uh, 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 ultimately for financial culpability, but their department is, and that person is is going to lose his or her job. And if you couple that with legislation that ends the so-called gypsy cops syndrome, where they can go from department to department or city to city, that if you make the departments legally and financially responsible for those kind of excesses, you can crack down on that kind of unforgivable behavior without exposing an individual officer who did what was clearly the wrong thing, but in a moment by moment decision that might've been more difficult to to make it the time then than to look back at it in retrospect.
1: Any last thoughts, Bob or Carlo?
3: Well, I, I will say that in order to get rid of what you call the gypsy cops, there's one thing, two things that have to change. One is the police unions, and the second is Pullboard, the police officer's Bill of Rights. That allows a police officer in in Los Angeles to shoot somebody in a questionable in a questionable shooting and decide to leave the job and then get hired in San Francisco. And he kills somebody there and the family wants to find out what what happened in his last job because of the poor boy, you can't find out, or you, it's very hard to find out if you get rid of that, or at least amend that to the point where you can't hide behind your, your past bad behavior. I think that goes a long way towards cleaning up the problem.
2: And once again, I think if you switch, If you do eliminate the legal protection for departments, there'll be a huge disincentive for a police department to hire someone who they suspect is coming with a checkered past.
1: Okay, well, one of our interconnected issues is, of course, the economic crisis. Um, You know, millions and millions of people uh, unemployed. The GDP fell on what is it, an annualized rate. Uh, for the la- last quarter of more than thirty percent, which I believe was the highest on record, you know, it, we it, it's pro- it, it can be kind of hard to follow sometimes if you're just following its statistics because you see the news come out one day this morning that you know what was it, 1.2 million jobs were created and then we're still talking about you know more than a million people who've lost their jobs and but I think uh, and I, I it might have been Dan who referred to this earlier is just the the pending issues of uh, the eviction crisis of, of you know, these kind of short-term stopgaps uh, protections we had uh, for folks in some localities, even those aren't all across the nation, are going to really start to bite. And it's not just going to hurt those people, devastate the people who still don't get a job in, in August and September. It's going to devastate their landlords. It's going to devastate all the companies that have been hanging on by a thread, hoping that they'd be able to reopen in a couple months and and finally have to throw in the towel what are they saying now? Uh, it's more than 50 percent of the restaurants, for example, in San Francisco that have closed are never going to open again. So let's talk a bit about that. And and obviously we're a political show. So, um, you know, the, the political impact of that. And I'm going to just throw it right back to you, Dan. Trump might have been making the play that, yes, if I get the economy going again and ginned up or even get that, just get the the, the trend line looking better, I, I might be able to pull it out. But. It's not looking like it's going to be a good fall economically for all of us or politically for him.
2: The the great irony, of course, is had he pushed for a short and strict shutdown, we might be in a better place economically by now, which ironically might be helping his reelection hopes. But by taking that gamble, he basically, while he hasn't eliminated his chances, of course, he's pretty much submarined them. Going forward... um, I think the, the question, uh, the, the, the question is, 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 can he change the subject? In an interview earlier this week, the president was asked, do you think the election is a referendum on your handling of the pandemic? Which is a really smart question, but probably a fairly useless question, <laughs> because the president, of course, said, no, it's not and he went on to talk. He said, for example, I've done Space Force. He's created a fifth branch of the U.S. military and sees that as a potential part of the referendum, mentioned (laughs) any number of other things as well. Ultimately, I think voters would forgive an economic recession if they saw progress being made. Keep in mind, I mentioned the four presidents earlier who lost during economic downturns. Well, Franklin Roosevelt was elected twice during the Great Depression. And it's because voters understood that that depression was caused by circumstances beyond his control. But he demonstrated very purposeful leadership on leading them through the tunnel to the light. Voters don't have that confidence in Trump. He won four years ago by convincing them that Hillary Clinton was an unacceptable alternative. That's clearly his strategy this year with Vice President Biden. The challenge is, is Biden um, does not elicit nearly as visceral Emotional response from voters the way Hillary Clinton did. And so, what you have is you have the so called double haters. You have voters who don't like either candidate. In 2016, they voted for Donald Trump. They said, I don't like Trump and I don't like Clinton. By double digits, they voted for Donald Trump. This year, those voters who don't like either candidate are voting for Joe Biden by more than 25 points. So all the way back to your question, and I apologize for veering, John, is voters will judge Trump harshly on the economy unless they begin to see recovery in the next couple months. But it didn't have to be that way had he chosen another course from the outset uh, back last spring. Or he just I... made
1: it really obvious that uh, the Space Force was really his calling card. I think you know, voters just need to have that differentiated. I'm sorry, Carla, you were...
0: No, I was going to say, I, I think one of the interesting things about this is Uh, that Trump and his economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, seem to be still in denial. And and recent interviews, even yesterday, uh, Kudlow suggesting, uh, you know, maybe there's there's no second wave and uh, things are going to be great come next quarter. And I think many voters aren't seeing that. And I think that is, uh, you know, a lot of people have said Trump could still get a handle on this. If he said tomorrow, I am going to make sure that everybody has access to the same tests that I have in the White House, where I can find out immediately uh, if if I'm infected. As as it stands right now, and and I I just recently had a a COVID test myself, it took 13 days to get the results, which is useless to most Americans, right? And yet in the White House, he's of course, he's protected because he's getting uh, instantaneous results you know, many times a day if necessary. I think Americans might forget if they saw some kind of a, a initiative there or some kind of acknowledgement uh, with regard to the economy. And this is where I think it's a little bit head-scratching the, 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 the amount of denial we're seeing from him in numerous, in not just the Chris Wallace interview, but the recent Axios interview. Uh, it is what it is. Um, it's, it's not a... Um, is not a, a line that I think works as a, as a motto for uh, a re-election. You
3: know, here, here, here's what it is. I, I did some research. I started looking it up. How many jobs have we actually lost during the pandemic? I've seen anywhere from 40 million to 20 million. But, you know, even with the 1.2 that we brought back last week or last month, there's still only less than half of the jobs have come back that we've lost. That's devastating. You know, I just look at my own situation. I you was know, working pretty regularly at, at the station. I've worked like eight days since April 1st. And I'm not the only person in that situation. So people that aren't full-time working a lot less hours, if you are full-time and you're still able to work, you're doing a lot more work because you have fewer people uh, that are working. So the economy may come roaring back in, in you know, September, October, but I don't think it's going to put people back on their feet. It's, it's just been too much pain. We've had to endure. It's going to take a lot longer than a couple of months to get us back.
0: And look at the ripple effect, John, when you talk about companies, major companies in Silicon Valley, Apple, Google, uh, I believe LinkedIn, they say they're not even going to have their folks come back into the office until July 2021. The ripple effect on all those ancillary businesses – that serve them is just enormous. So when you're talking about the ripple effect of the uh, of the eviction crisis right there with small investors and mom and pops who, own, who have had their entire life savings invested in a rental property, that's one thing. And then the number of small businesses that depend on all those big businesses that aren't coming back. So yeah, we could be many, many months yet into this and that this is the political uh, crisis that we've got for anyone who's trying to get elected into public office right
1: now. Yeah, one of our viewers uh, wrote in saying, uh, you know, there's got to be a more longer moratorium on on rents and and mortgages and and uh, uh, you know evictions and and uh, loans. Howard Schultz, former CEO of Starbucks, and and some other business folks got together, and I I forget how many of them there were, but they basically sent a letter to Congress saying, you have to extend. Yeah, you, know, you have to address these things. You have to address the, the $600 uh, additional uh, unemployment benefits because exactly what you're talking about is that the ripple effect is going, could lead to absolute economic catastrophe later this year when all this stuff starts to build up. And then everyone is so stretched out, they don't have any resources. to. You know, I mean, We're a country where uh, just a few years ago there were these reports about how the, you know, most Americans could not survive a $400 emergency.
2: John, and I think I think, I think think your last point is, is a really important one, and it's worth spending a moment on, that even when the economy does recover, and we've gone from talking about a V-shaped recovery to a U-shaped recovery to a W recovery to an L, which means it's going to be a while, even when it does come back, whenever it does, whether that's early, mid-next year, or even further, the economy is going to look fundamentally different toward the point that Bob and Carlo were just making. The Walmarts, the Amazons, the Netflixes, they're going to be just fine. It is the smaller businesses, which historically have been the lifeblood of most economies, that are going to disproportionately suffer. And so even when the economy does recover, it's going to be a much more centralized and a much more conglomerate-based economic and commercial landscape. Whether that's better or worse is for smarter people than me. But even a recovery implies something back to what we had before, and I think it's worth acknowledging that we are never going to return to where we were in January or February of 2020. Even economic growth is going to create a much different shaped economy than the type that we've grown accustomed to in the past.
1: I, I, was, uh, I, I watched a, a webinar like we're all kind of doing these days uh, from my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin uh, Real Estate Department. I'm, I'm not from that department, but I mean university of wisconsin um and they had two of their graduates who are now very successful in the industry they're talking about of course real estate post-covid and one of them mentioned that after the 1918 1920 pandemic it took four or five years for people to really start to return to theaters um you know it, it in the way they had before it in in large numbers because of course they had really gone through this wrenching experience of just what what the dangers can be with with an out-of-control virus running around. And, you know, hopefully, yes, we have a vaccine sooner and it happens to be successful and it's widely used, it's widely trusted, even though the Russians and others are doing their best to try to convince people that vaccines are, you know... Vaccines and masks are mind control uh, tools, um, but say it, it actually happens. It, it's still going to be a long time, even for those places where people will return to. It'll be a while before they do return to, or return in the same way that they did before. And I think, just like you were saying, Dan, in the in in these years now to come, all those those little shops. You know, I'm in downtown San Francisco right now. We're surrounded by lots of little restaurants who make their money by serving lunch to Google and Facebook employees and stuff like that. And now you walk around here a rush hour on a, on a typical business weekday and it's like a Sunday morning. So it's, and, 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 you know, it's just, I'm not saying anything new, I guess. I'm just really reiterating the whole ripple effect because it's like, it's not just that their business has collapsed. It's that they're now maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt or that, uh, you know, their marriage breaks up and and the, I mean, all the economic and emotional insecurity that goes along with that. Um, so let's stop talking about that. Let's, <laughs> as, as President Trump says, you know, that'll take care of itself. It'll just go away. Let's get really into the political game now then and let's talk about who Joe Biden is going to pick for his vice president. There was Carla, there was some thinking that he might actually announce it this week. We weren't sure if we would be talking about, uh, you know.
0: We're looking at a couple more days at least. Uh, the, yeah. the Democratic convention starts uh, next week and uh, the week after next. And I think uh, you'll see it probably closer to then. But boy, it's been interesting to watch this back and forth, this competition between Karen Bass, um, of course, who uh, heads the Congressional Black Caucus from uh, Southern California, and and Kamala Harris in the past couple of weeks. Karen Bass was, was viewed as Coming out of nowhere, about a month ago, all of a sudden people were talking about how she became the first black woman to be uh, the assembly speaker here in California. She was somebody who was a doer, who knew how to cross uh, p- political lines, get things done. She got uh, Schwarzenegger, had wonderful things to say about her, helped him handle the economic crisis. Uh, then, then some controversial stories came out uh, about... Some of the statements she made about C- Fidel Castro, her early on sort of radical roots in the Ben Ceramos brigade, then going back to Los Angeles, uh, going to a Scientology church, speaking very kindly about a very controversial uh, organization. So uh, Karen Bass uh, has taken some hits in the last couple of days. A lot of people on the betting side, even Las Vegas, I noticed today, John has um, Kamala Harris back at uh, number one. Not that, that, not that she won't take hits if she gets named uh, in the beginning when she was first named, people were saying a San Francisco liberal from California. How's that going to help Joe Biden? I think her name recognition, her ability as a speaker and a communicator does help Joe Biden in other states where he may need to get out that uh, Democratic base. But we'll see. It looks like Susan Rice and Kamala Harris right now uh, may be buying for number one here.
1: Well, and if he does pick Kamala Harris and, and they win, he can feel at least reasonably sure that she will be replaced by another Democrat. Right. Not <laughs> not just an appointee, but I mean, in, in a future election. Um, right. Bob, I mean, we're seeing Ka- Karen Bass, uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Tammy Duckworth, Susan Rice, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Val Demings. I mean, what do you think about uh, the the names that have been kind of?
3: Well, I think I think the most recent one of the most recent stories saying it's down to Harris or Rice. I I, I kind of I can see that. I mean, you know, you can't pick Warren because Republican governor will put a Republican in her seat. Val Demings very very good, but. I don't trust Ron DeSantis in that. I'm not sure how it works there, but anybody who has a Republican governor, I think you can't take that chance. Kamala Harris, I think, would be a good vice president. I think she'd be a better attorney general. And Susan Rice, they talk about Sampatico um, she's been with him for you know eight years um on on the uh you know with with the president. I that just makes sense to me. But the attorney general who was who I'm looking at, because I I'm just curious to see what's going to happen. If, indeed, uh, Biden wins and what happens with all of the, I don't want to call them crimes, but they sure as hell smell like crimes that have taken place over the last uh, three and a half years.
2: John, the the last time a vice presidential running mate uh, helped the presidential candidate achieve the White House in a significant way was Lyndon Johnson in 1960. The fact that this happens every 60 years should suggest it's more the exception than the rule and I would argue to you that the two most impactful running mates in the last 60 years have been Tom Eagleton and Sarah Palin. So for Joe Biden, particularly sitting here with a pretty considerable lead in the polls right now, the political version of the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. If you're Biden, you have two considerations. One, you want someone who's prepared to be president from day one. Second, you want someone who's going to be as loyal to you as he was to Barack Obama. Kamala Harris, by every conventional measurement, fits that first category, that first threshold, more than any of the other leading candidates as a senator. Susan Rice has never run for office before. Members of the House, local elected officials not you know, don't bring the same qualifications. Harris's challenge, whether it's fair or not, is there are questions about her loyalty. And Carla knows this better than anybody in American politics. There have been any number of enemies that Senator Harris has made over the years, who are now getting their pound of flesh back by suggesting very publicly and very snidely that she would prioritize a Harris for president 2024 campaign from the beginning, as opposed to giving her loyalty to Biden. Karen Bass is a remarkable woman. She's an admirable public official who has about as much chance of ending up as Joe Biden's running mate as I do. Um, (laughs) And this is not to criticize her, But given the comments that in the past she has made about Fidel Castro, put the state of Florida at risk to Biden at a time when he simply cannot afford to do that. Susan Rice in the last few days has begun to be on the receiving end of her own criticism, primarily from progressive Democrats who are not that motivated for Biden to begin with on her past national security positions and her financial holdings. I would tell you this, John, that if Joe Biden is confident in his election, and realizes he needs someone to be his vice president more than he needs someone to be an effective running mate, then Susan Rice is probably the pick. If he and his his advisors are still concerned about the outcome of the election, then they probably look for someone with more electoral appeal. But it is a campaigner versus a governance question. And once again, as long as you avoid a paler or an Eagleton, it's probably not going to make that much of a difference anyway.
3: What's wrong with, with Harris running for 2024 campaign now? Trump did it, and people like that.
2: Trump wasn't anybody's vice president. He was the president. point my, my, started my, his campaign the day after the election. My, my point, and I'm not taking sides either against Harris or for Trump, no, I is there is when Biden signed on with Barack Obama, he at that point did not think he would ever run for president again and felt that his unquestioned loyalty without trying to provide for his own political future was something that served President Obama well. I suspect that, like I said, Harris would be the safe and would be the traditional choice if she didn't get picked. It's probably because someone close to Joe Biden convinced him that she would have two primary loyalties rather than one.
1: Okay, we are almost out of time. Uh, someone in the audience did uh, raise a question about a topic I do, do want to at least uh, touch on. So I'm, I'm going to just direct this to Carla. The United States Postal Service.
0: Ah, yeah. Slow I mean,
1: down. What's going on? What, what do you think of it?
0: Has repeatedly gone after uh, mail-in voting and suggested that, uh, uh, in, particularly in California, he keeps mentioning this, uh, that this would be a source of tremendous voter fraud. I mean, we should be remind that in the uh, most recent House election down in the CA-25 uh, House district, Republicans used mail-in voting there to a fault and won that one. <laughs> that was Katie Hill's seat. Uh, I mean, the, the fact is, there's no evidence that mail-in voting. It's used in, uh, it's going to be used in, I think, seven states this time around, and California is one of them. You can vote in person if you want. You can vote by mail. Every registered voter will get a ballot, uh, but you don't have to mail it in. So I think uh, you know the, the president has pounded this one, and at the same time has said he has no problem with mail-in voting in Florida because it's a Republican governor there. I mean, he has said that. So. Uh, I think most, most Americans, particularly in the pandemic, are and polls show this, are totally supportive of mail-in voting. They do not want to stand in lines and shouldn't have to stand in lines for hours to cast a ballot. I think there's a public safety issue that's being raised. Uh, the president may rail against it all he wants, but uh, I, I, I don't think uh, most Americans are buying it.
1: Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up on that note. And I want to aff- offer just a few words of hope in these tumultuous times. Judges have now twice in two months told Republican Representative Devin Nunes that he cannot, in fact, sue Twitter over tweets from a fake cow, specifically the Twitter account called Devin Nunez's cow. Um, we hope this puts an end to a particularly odd crusade. And yes, we still have Louis Gohmert to contend with. But I think that shows that with a little help from the judicial system and a return of week to week, we can make this country sane again. Thank you to our great panel today, Dan Schnurr, Bob Butler, and Carla Marinucci. Thanks to all of you for listening and watching. Stay safe and stay healthy, and have a good weekend.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.